Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Lake Placid is over. Betty White, what have you done? What have you done? It has existed since prehistoric times. It was worshipped by primitive cultures. It can kill a man with one crushing bite. We heard a man was bit in half. Any recent bear attacks? Bears don't attack people underwater. Probably a fever then. What was that? Whatever's out there, he shot with this, he's dead. Oh, no. <laughs> Sheriff, how many deputies you got? You came here to help you find it. We can't let him kill it. Experience a few parts mystery. Do you have any theories of why he's here? Honestly, I don't know. And a few parts... <laughs> missing. It's a human toe. Is this the man who was killed? He seemed taller. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bill Pullman. Shoot him. No! How much of a wacko is this guy? Bridget Fonda. Mother! Oliver Platt. Maybe swam back up! Maybe not. I just have this feeling everything's totally safe. This summer, the Earth's oldest creature has just found a new home. Go under! 
Lake Placid. She's saucy, that Betty. Oh, she's so saucy. Now, Andy, I wonder if you were looking to find out what your grandmother was feeding the animals, where would you go? You know, my grandmother was a big fan of Letterbox.com. She what? she would talk. She would go to every movie that talked about feeding, um, or, or just like the big animals, the creature features, and she would talk yeah. about all the animals she, she fed in the uh, in her posts and in everybody's uh, conversations over there. So that's where she people reviewed a lot of big animal movies. Is that true? Oh, she's a big yeah. We my childhood yeah. was living <laughs> big animal movies. It's like growing up in the circus. You have this image of you just living in like a tax, a crazy old taxidermist house. <laughs> Except they're all You know, alive. it's kind of a cross. <laughs> it's a cross between Lake Placid and Coraline. <laughs> it's just full of giant animals. Giant animals with button eyes. Yes. Right. They were my play friends. Exactly. Yes. Interesting conversations that we had. But yes, head over to letterbox.com slash the next reel. You can see all of the stuff we're talking about and all the movies we talk about and get in with the conversation with us over there. Okay, Lake Placid, Andy. I have to admit, I've been looking forward to this one. I it, It's not... I, I, I feel like when we watched all the other ones, my sense memory was set and I knew what I was getting into with all these movies and I had a I had this very high um we'll say just sort of opinion memory opinion of Lake Placid. I'm I'm wondering how like what you took brought into this movie. Like what was the sort of your emotional state when you started watching this movie? Well, I don't know if you recall but it did pop up on Letterboxd not that long ago that I had actually recently watched this again. Yeah. Uh, because, because I really enjoy this movie. Um, it's, I guess, you know, based on the general popularity of it, I may have to call it a guilty pleasure. I I find it to be just a hoot. I think that the people are clearly having fun with it. And, you know, it's is it a great movie? Maybe not, but I sure have a lot of fun watching this one. So, yeah, this was just uh, earlier this year, back in February, I, I watched it. And, yeah, I just, I have a ton of fun. So, and I had just as much fun on my recent watch as I did back in February. And, yeah, I, maybe I'm the audience for it. Well, that's become, that has become clear <laughs> just in the last 35 seconds. That's exactly now what I expect. Yeah, I, I'm taking it, you, you did not walk away with the joy that I did. I just, I, I feel like we have to talk about it because I honestly, this is not, I'm not coming at this with like just, just ragey hot takes, right? I am, this movie on this watch confused me more than ever. I, I honestly don't know where to put my feelings for this movie because I, I watch it and there are pieces of it that give me great joy and I find really fun. And then I, I just wonder if, I wonder if I'm not being gaslit a little bit about this movie, <laughs> that in fact it is actually terrible and I need to I need to wake up. So I, we'll talk about it. But first, I think you know, Andy, we have to start. If we're going to be in a series about aquatic killers, we has to start with the aquatic killer of the movie and the ranking, the now weekly ranking, stack ranking, the aquatic killer catalog that we've talked about so far. Now, so far we have the octopus from Tentacles. We have the piranha 
from Piranha uh, w- with some government intervention. A little in bit. There. We have the uh, absurdly long Anaconda from Anaconda. And now the great saltwater crocodile, uh, the large and hyper carnivorous apex predator in Lake Placid. Specifically, I believe it, it's determined to be like an Indo-Pacific crocodile yes. right it is that apparently, according to yeah. the shape of its scales according to the shape of its scales yes i don't know much from scale shapes but i do know it's really long and then i read up a little bit on the saltwater crocodile and i read things like this the saltwater crocodile is a large and opportunistic hypercarnivorous apex predator. It ambushes most of its prey and then drowns or swallows it whole. It is capable of prevailing over almost any animal that enters its territory, including the apex predators such as sharks and varieties of freshwater or saltwater fish, including pelagic species, invertebrates such as crustaceans, various reptiles, birds, and mammals, including humans. So far, Andy, in that list, this thing eats. Sharks, probably octopuses, uh, piranha, and anacondas. So <laughs> and humans, uh, according it, to the list, and humans. <laughs> it it seems like this thing is already uh, pretty serious. Now, in the movie, the shark or the shark, <laughs> the land, the, the land shark is uh, is thirty two feet. The model that Stan Winston is thirty two feet long. Did it need to be thirty two feet? To be terrifying, they don't really grow beyond 21 feet in in the wild. And we can talk about that in a second. Did it need to be quite this big at 32 feet? I, I couldn't tell what 21 feet is versus 32 feet in a shark eating the what This movie could have been like, you could have laid this out with just hungry crocodile in the water, not a massive crocodile in the water. So I don't know. I, I feel like this one right now, it, it probably has it for me as the scariest threat yeah it definitely is i mean it's it it pretty creepy the idea of these things being so big and i mean you know it's also a trend of these movies and i think we can look at jaws as a sign that this was definitely a thing to come is that you know what if you're going to do this we're going to make it even bigger because even in jaws they look at that and they're like that's bigger than any shark i've ever seen and, so, and yeah. same thing in Anaconda and Piranha. They're huge. I mean, they're always bigger and more abnormally sized than they should be. And even last time, the Anaconda was more like the, uh, was it the, what was the name of it? The uh, Oh, it was Titanoboa. Titanoboa, yeah. I feel like the the size of this crocodile, yes, it's abnormally large, but it ends up being kind of going back to kind of more of a prehistoric creature size, or it's just unexplainably large, you know, it's it's not mm-hmm. determined as to how it ever got here, but it's big. It is dang big. And I mean, looking at the largest that they've been, or, you know, that they think that they've been, I don't know if they've ever figured it out, but I mean, they've found skulls from old uh, saltwater crocodiles. And I think the largest that they found, the head alone, if it had been detached from the body, may weigh 440 pounds by itself for the, based on this skull. So uh, that's, that's a, that's a pretty big boy. I, yeah. So I think that there probably were some prehistoric versions of these that did get to be uh, frighteningly large. When you say things like "big boy," like you did just <laughs> now, a... do you know? Do you notice in your head that you put a little stank on it? <laughs> you put you've got a little spin on the ball when you do that. Maybe a little a bit. Big, yeah, big boy. 
pretty big bite. Yeah, I uh, I do. The the one that that uh, I got completely stuck on is Lolong, uh, which died in captivity uh, in February uh, twenty thirteen, and this one was almost twenty one feet. It is the largest that had been living and and actually taken into captivity and died in captivity, but it's the longest on record. There are a number of reported bigger crocodiles uh, that they've found, but haven't been able to get close enough to them to sedate them and measure them from head to tail. These things are stunningly big when you have a sense of perspective to them. This the Lolong, the, the picture I'm looking at of it's it's Lolong lying on the ground sedated. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven guys like riding astride it. And they look tiny. They look tiny. So I, you know, I, I feel like just this is a terrifying animal in uh, of its own stead. I know that they're amping up things again for movies like this. The part of the satire to make the satire work is to have an absurdly large crocodile. I get yep. it. Yeah. But I also think this is why I'm partly conflicted here. This could have been a totally a very different and much, I, I think, arguably more interesting movie if it was taken, if, if they actually took it a little bit more seriously. And I don't feel like I've seen, uh, uh, <laughs> I, maybe, can you think of a Crocodile Attacks movie like uh, Dingo Ate My Baby or something like that, you know? <laughs> I wish they took this more seriously. I, I feel like, <laughs> just hearing you say that, I, I kind of lost track of everything you were saying because it's like, I don't know how many people say that about these creature attack movies. I know, but wouldn't like, that did be they say there that? that I wish that there was Steven that Spielberg one. really took the the reality of great white sharks more seriously when he made that okay. film. Okay, you're making me sound <laughs> ridiculous. This is on you. I think it was fine leading up to that. I watched this movie and I think, okay, I get the camp. I get it. It's fine. The crocodile is really big. Also, I, I'm scared to death of crocodiles, like these, like these giant slimy lizards that are hunting me because that's what they do, apparently, is they stalk and hunt you. And that's it might be just enough for me in the movie. And they, I don't need the campy stuff. It could just be scary. That's all yeah. I'm saying. There, there was, I don't know if I'd call it any more serious than anything else. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, you know, which one of these is really more serious and takes it seriously. <laughs> but there, there was an Australian film named Dark Age from 1987 that a listener of the show, Nick Langdon, pointed out. And I watched it also earlier in the year. And it's a show about, you know, in the Australian outback where a, uh, a guide is trying to track this giant crocodile that's eating some of the locals. And it... I mean, it definitely goes down the road of kind of cheesy creature feature at times. But at the same time, it does feel like as it builds to an end, it actually felt a little more serious, which was kind of interesting, a little like more along the line of conservation and stuff. So I was like, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting it to kind of go down that road. Mm -hmm. So so that's something that certainly might be kind of worth looking into. But I, I think largely, yeah, you're not finding a lot of that, the serious take on I mean, I think I'd have to go to something like The Revenant just to look at the bear attack. Yes. But, it's, but the movie's not about bears attacking. It's not, right. you know, this bear attacked and now we have to get away. It's an element of the film, but it's not the film. Um, but yeah. it's taken very seriously. And and I feel like that it may be the sort of thing that you'd have to go to to find that sort of take on it. Yeah. All right. Well, 
anyway, this thing is scary. It's legit scary. And 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 I think it finally we have a movie that comes back and earns the eyes pe- peeking up over the surface that oh, was yes. introduced to us in tentacles with an octopus. <laughs> now we get it for real and it it makes it it's good. I, I just have to just point out, we have talked about Jaws and Great White Sharks, and I suppose at this point we're keeping it off of our ranking until the end. We'll add that on onto the list because we haven't been talking about that as we rank. So let's save that Should one now for the you, end. You're sure? Let's. Well, we're this far in. Let's wait till we get to the end now, and then we'll throw it on there <laughs> as a bonus for people. Okay. I did also want to say right. that just as far as like crocodiles themselves, well, one, this movie specifically is a saltwater crocodile. It's not the freshwater yeah. crocodiles, which are much smaller. They are not yes. nearly to be as terrified of. Like what? Eight uh, to 10 feet, right? Yeah, I mean, 12 a feet lot, maybe. Exactly. Like much they wouldn't attack a person they might bite you if you're like you know p- poking it or things like that but it's not going to try to eat you something like yeah. this would you we um, went to i this is scary, one of the weirdest i was we went to costa rica a, a several years ago and we're driving across a bridge and the bridge is packed with people and you look over the bridge and it's like there's no fences no nothing but there are hundreds of crocodiles mm. down there like just at the in the basin in the muddy basin of the bridge, and they're all like they're all the shorter ones. They they looked at just as threatening. Did you feel like it was Temple of Doom? Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yes. And occasionally one of them would like snap, and you you know a tail would <laughs> like twash. I was like, why are we here? There's no fences. Like I could walk down there and just cross under the bridge if I wanted to. I didn't. Could you want walk to. across them like that uh, like, James uh, Bond movie uh, or uh, Pitfall? Yeah, the video <laughs> or, <game>. right <laughs> or that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the well, movie. But, but, but no, wait, yeah. before before we go oh. too much farther, I, I a few more points regarding crocodiles um, as we're talking about them. There are our, our, our crocodile hunter who shows up, Oliver Platt's character, Hector, who is this uh, mythology professor, this, this rich guy who is hunting these crocs, or really just kind of like trying to study them, I suppose. He's, he brings up a few points. He says that there are cultures who deify crocodiles. That actually is true. There are cultures who do deify crocodiles. I couldn't find anything about the Melanesia people who kind of view it as this, uh, you know, this test where if you can survive the crocodile, then it's it, like it's being the final judge, blah, blah, blah. I didn't see anything about like that, I, although I didn't dig too deep. Maybe there are some myths about these sorts of things with crocodiles. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But also he said that the record was a 27-foot crocodile, which uh, I guess we've at this point proven false. So we know that there's some wishy-washy facts. <laughs> the one that I found that was reportedly larger than that is Chris the Savannah King. That's K-R-Y-S. And this is one that they've, they've never actually found. So this giant crocodile was shot and killed in July of 1958 in uh, Normanton, Queensland, Australia. And it was named Chris after the person who, who shot it. And they have this picture of it using force perspective. So the people are standing way in the back and the crocodile is giant and it's not great for reputation building. They claimed that it was 28 feet, four inches, 8.64 meters. And uh, and there's actually a life size replica of it in Normanton. But they it's just so much bigger than any other 
of these crocodiles that they've ever found that it just it it's it strains credulity and so they're they're honestly that's the crocodile when you start reading about crocodiles and you look at this story which is satire about crocodiles getting absurdly big that's the crocodile that i'm thinking of right is this absurdly big crocodile that nobody's ever seen before that's what the whole movie's about so that you know you could say this is it's uh, actually a it's a biopic is what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think and I think, you know, like, you know, Fisherman, it speaks to the world of people bringing right. these sorts of things forward, because also there was one that was shot in 1840 in the Bay of Bengal reported at 10.1 meters or 33 feet, two inches. So theoretically, that would be bigger than the one we have yeah. in this movie here. But then later, Guinness Book of World Records examined its skull and said that based on the skull size, it probably was only 19 feet, four inches or 5.89 meters. So you know, it's it's a hard thing to gauge. And I think people are always going to be trying to say, we found the biggest. No, we found the biggest, you know, because there's another another uh, in Borneo that was said to be 32 feet. And so it's just, yeah. it's it's trying to get the proof. I guess that's what it boils down to. Well, what treats? Please don't have them as pets. Okay. I, and I, don't flush them down talking, the toilet when you do, because uh, we've no, seen what happens there. Terrible things. Now, Stan Winston, I, I just, I know we're, I haven't talked about the movie yet, but as long as we're talking about the creature, I feel like the creature is is pretty great. It is really great. Stan Winston did the puppetry here, and this was a really smart methodology that uh, director Steve Miner put forward working with Stan Winston, and it was very much kind of the Jurassic Park methodology that Stan Winston did in that film, and that is blending real puppets with CG as needed. And I found that when you see that it ends up feeling so much more real because there are times where you're looking at that crocodile puppet in the water, either the full body one or the head or the tail, whichever one it is, because there, there were those three puppets built. It And then you blend it and you cut in with you know the full body as it's kind of charging or something like that. And it just ends up working really well. Like it just, it makes so much more sense. It feels authentic. So I really appreciate that, especially having now watched Lake Placid 2. And let me just tell you, it's all CG in that one. And it is garbage. I mean, I know that was like a straight to TV, straight to video type of movie. But uh, so the budget was low anyway, but it just was terrible. Absolutely terrible. That's too bad. That's, you know, uh, totally predictable, but too bad. Um, yeah. I, I think the I think the effect is great. I think the final it, it's a little bit frustrating when we get to the final scene in the movie, because I feel like the rest of the movie, they do such a great job of both concealing the crocodile as they're uh, fighting it and then revealing it perfectly. Like the when the bear attacks and the crocodile comes up out of the water, broad daylight. That's an effect that in 1999 would not have been easy to pull off with exclusively CG and to have all of those elements, both real and CG assist, you know, working alongside one another. I think the, the puppet is the puppets are incredible, uh, really dynamic. And funny wow. story about that scene. They brought in a, a bear to I, and I'm not sure if it was Bart the bear. I think Bart the bear may have been dead yeah. by then. I can't remember. But anyway, they brought in a bear to film and the bear saw the 32 foot hydraulic crocodile right there and the bear ran away. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, it was nose. smart enough to know, you know what? I'm not messing with that thing. They could not That's get the amazing. bear. They could not get the bear to come back to film with it. It was Bears too are so scared, smart. Right? Uh, they actually ended up having to put this giant crocodile underwater just so they could get the bear to come onto the set. God, that's amazing. I think that is so, so funny. <laughs> Isn't that the equivalent of like going to the dentist and seeing, okay, your dentist today will be Dave Batista. Like, come on. Like, it's just too much. Even a bear knows. You don't want Dave Batista's giant hands in your mouth like that. <laughs> that's it. That's what I'm saying. So I, I feel like, Andy, we have to talk about David E. Kelly. Okay. We're going to start with him. Let's do it. David E. Kelly, writer and uh, producer on the film, and mostly known, I guess we could say, for his uh, for his TV writing. That seems to be the larger world of his writing. Although, just before, a few years before this, he had written the screenplay for To Jillian on her 37th birthday. And yeah. this same year as this, he also wrote Mystery Alaska. Um, so, but TV. You're a TV fan of his, right? Ally McBeal. And that is why, yes, that is why I want to talk about this. David E. Kelly, this he's he's a Hollywood dream, right? He's he's a, a dumb country lawyer who makes good. <laughs> when I say that, I mean he went to Princeton and Boston University School of Law, so he schlepped his way through law school, and then he wrote a screenplay, and he goes and gets famous, and now he is one of the very few uh, screenwriters and showrunners to have shows that have aired and been successful and popular on all four major U.S. television networks, ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC. I knew him from uh, Boston Legal and Boston Public and Ally McBeal and The Practice. We kind of stopped watching David E. Kelly shows around Chicago Hope. Um, it just didn't, didn't really take off and missed uh picket fences but we're big la law fans so pretty much the la the law shows we were big into the david e kelly law shows i was gonna say and he did um big little lies which was which one that i remember current. a recent one and yeah. well i think it ended um right. or I, I don't know if they're doing uh, no, anymore. They're in, uh, i don't know if they're going anymore but and then mr anyway, mercedes a, a, a stephen king one yes that's right Absolutely right. And so, you know, there he has a certain tone that he was known for, particularly in the legal stuff. Like I, when I watch episodes and I haven't watched all of Big Little Lies, but I watch that show and I don't get a sense that I'm watching a David E. Kelly show. Right. Not yeah. in the same way that I, I feel like I'm watching a um, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, what's his name? Aaron Sorkin show. Right. The, the guy is inseparable from the language that he writes. I think David E. Kelly was more inseparable for the kinds of characters he creates. And he created some crazy characters in those uh, shows, right? The legal shows in particular. They were great. I mean, just a great character guy. So I come into looking at his movies with that kind of, of uh, expectation. It is similar to thinking about my expectations of like Joss Whedon going into Cabin in the Woods. You know what I mean? Like there okay. is a certain sense that I know kind of what I'm going to get. And I feel like Cabin in the Woods paid off for me, right? In a big way. It, it was that sort of filmmaker sandwich. I know what I'm getting and I'm satisfied with the result. It made good on the promises of, um, you know, the identity of the past work. I really, really enjoyed it. This movie, I feel like he's trying to do something different. He's trying to make something that's a little bit more satirical in a genre that is not his native. And 
that's why it it moves in and out of working for me. What I love about what he's done here, uh, characters like uh, the rich industrialist who wants to swim with crocodiles and lands on a helicopter, great identity piece. Betty White in general, great. I I really like the you know the whole fish and game relationship. I think all of that is really great. He writes those characters in a kind of David E. Kelly way, but then he puts them in this place and with the words coming out of their mouths that just uh, they feel distant. They don't feel whole and of a piece. They feel like they're trying. They're reaching for satire in a way that is often off kilter for me. And that, I wonder, is that a David E. Kelly problem? Is it a Steve Miner problem? What is the problem that I have with the tone and tonality of this movie? That's interesting because I, I guess I never looked at it as a satire. Like for me, it always struck me as, and I, they even talk about this, but it felt like kind of a comedy horror, which certainly is a thing. Uh, it and Steve Miners worked in that realm before. You know, we've talked sure. to him. We've talked about some of the stuff that he's done, and kind of that's like that's his preferred realm to be in, rather than right. kind of the Friday the Thirteenth stuff that he had been in. It's more that house type of property that that fits his kind of the tone that he's looking for and and then they were looking to do something that just was really kind of just a campy campy fun and i feel like i don't know i felt like they struck that perfectly now i do think that there are some script issues the way that david e kelly chose to write his characters in such broad strokes where it's like i, I sometimes i i watch these characters and i wonder is he is he playing these stereotypes just far too far? That's I think that's the question, though. And I, isn't that kind of a, a statement on what he's trying to do? Like when you write these characters way out of bounds from their expectations, it's like there's got to be some sort of you're doing that for a reason. Right. What kind of point are you making with the way he with the words he puts in there? They're absurd. Well, but and I guess that's I guess that's the the thing is I don't I didn't see it that they were trying to make a point on it. I just felt like he was just doing it because they thought it would be a fun way to write the characters. And maybe that's the problem. Like a stylistic choice. Yeah, maybe that's the problem is that he wrote them so broadly that it feels like, well, there must be a point for him to be doing it like this. Uh, because certainly a lot of people have more problems with this <laughs> than I do. Um, the the way that they are so incredibly uh, broad, especially the the I, I think the the major culprit in the film is Bridget Fonda's character, who is so over the top to a point where it's like this is ridiculous. There must be a reason that he wrote her this way as a person who has written much stronger female characters in his TV properties, right? And so that's I think where it it, it there there ends up being this this line that maybe it's just he wasn't sure how to how far to take it and so he just wrote them this way and minor directed them this way and they play this way the actors perform them this way and it's all done this way just to try hitting that kind of that zone of that comedy horror uh and maybe it is a it was at a point where especially post scream in 96 that horror movies started pushing into new territory because it was they had already started moving into this meta nature and it was almost like these were old school people who missed the boat that's an interesting way to look at it actually i i think that that is um that makes a lot of sense i think your bridget fonda is i i have trouble with that but my question was watching it uh is it a performative thing is it just that bridget fonda 
wasn't able to connect with the words on the page. Oh, I don't think so at all. Like, I think she really connects well with the words on the page. I think she delivers it all in the character and it works in context of the character. But then the question is, but is it too much? Is it far too much when she says things uh, like, I'm, you know, no, what was it like? Oh, I'm trying to find the lines that she has. She's got some lines like I I don't uh, I don't do mosquitoes and things like that or whatever. Oh. Whereas just like, you know, especially as we learn with a character who as a kid would spend time like at at her grandmother's house on the lake. So it's like she obviously, you know, had that in her life when she was younger and now she's just it's so over the top and broad yeah. as to like city girl country setting. And everybody's going to just make a point of it to the point where it's just, it's nonsense. Forgive the profanity, but things like, thank you, it's so rewarding to imagine my tax dollar finding its way to you, you f*** Well, that would be Betty White, that would not be... I, well, I, yeah, it's it was quoted, it's quoted in the script originally as hers, right? She was hers. Are you sure? The, well, I'm reading it, Kelly Scott. Because that's totally Betty White who says that. Yeah, I know. And if you go back to Mrs. Bickerman, she actually says she has some some pretty good lines. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, no, because what she says is uh, murders and rapes in the city, people bomb planes. Can the people stop them? No, but feed one to a cat, one little cow to a crocodile. The sheriff says, you're going to stay here until the police show. You're under full house arrest. And she says, thank you, officer. That's her yes. line. Right. Uh, first of all, that profanity is just, it's, it, it's, it's, you're just taking two words and you're putting them together. It is uninspired <laughs> profanity. And so I find that those kinds of things feel to me like they're, you're doing something that's so obviously ridiculous sounding that you have to have a point. And I never get the point. I never really grasp the the point. I have a lot of fun with the slashing with the the animal horror stuff. I, I have a lot of fun with that. We got to talk about that that opening sequence when uh, uh, when the diver goes down and comes back up as half of a diver is awesome. Mwah. Yeah, those sorts of things well, are great. And and I mean, but I think you're going to find that sort of stuff throughout, right? Right, because that's a fantastic scene. While the divers underwater dealing with the beavers slash the crocodile, you also have uh, have our <laughs> wonderful uh, <laughs> small county sheriff sitting on the boat eating Twinkies, yeah. and so I mean, there's a lot of that sort of that over the top stereotyping that they do in this film with these characters, and it it does get to a point where it's a little much. And I guess, I guess to that end, I just feel like it was by some uh, a writer and director who were enjoying kind of playing with the all of the tropes that went along with it but again it just it, i think that time had passed and especially now when you're looking at it uh 21 years after the film had been released it yeah. feels even more dated when you watch these characters and and that and it does end up hurting the film <laughs> i think it does i think it does i think when you when you remove any of that uh of that material as dated what's left is honestly what i got the most joy out of which was the the animal horror stuff which i thought was fun but yeah i think it's it's kind of uh late 1990s self-awareness that just doesn't that doesn't play as well for me. Well, you got, yeah, I mean, that's all of what it is. Like the reason, yeah. even just the setup to get her there, the fact that there's an affair going on, the whole thing, that whole setup feels a little 
rough, right? With her boyfriend running the place. Thank God for Mariska Hargitay and and Adam Arkin, man. They really saved those seats. I mean, yeah, they're fine in it, but still, (laughs) it just, it comes in being like, well, that was an odd way to deal with all of that. And then, then also you have these screenplay transitions where you have Bridget Fonda saying, I'm not going to Maine. And then you cut to her on the plane to Maine. And I feel like this had been a trope in screenplays long before this uh, rolled around. And I just, yeah, I just felt like, okay, that was, that was dated already by the time you used that here. So maybe it's just David E. Kelly, the transition to writing an actual screenplay that kind of that taught two hour, or in this case, 82 minutes or whatever it is, very short uh, script and that many pages, it, it's just a harder thing for him to put together, maybe. I don't know. Well, you know what I would submit on behalf of David E. Kelly is that he is a writer who writes so perilously on the razor's edge of timeliness that his work becomes dated maybe more quickly than others of the same ilk. Because uh, you know, we went back and watched some uh, Ally McBeal uh, not too long ago and kind of had the same feeling about mm. the way he wrote, in particular, the way he wrote Ally's character was yeah. um, it, it was fine when we watched it, you know, 25 years ago. It's less fine now. It doesn't hold up. The jokes don't hold up the they it in, in many areas. It's just uh, it just doesn't quite stick the landing as you, as if you'd say as you'd expect. And I think it just might be. Maybe because he is one of his special gifts is that he is he can write, you know, so well timed to the era. And I think that there's something to that, because when you're doing that for TV and it kind of has that life where it's kind of living with people over the course Mm of years, I think it can it can feel like it's fitting in with them more because it kind of evolves with them over the years that the show is playing. Whereas in a film, it's just it's this point in time that hits, not to mention the fact that it was written likely several years beforehand. Right. It gets made, it gets released. I mean, there's already a chunk of time by the time it's it's hitting the screens and people are watching it where it could potentially already have fallen out of favor in its style. And then you're looking at it that many years later and it's, it, it is a hard thing to kind of hold up yeah you know but that being said there are things that do work in here like everything that happens between oliver platt and brendan gleason i just love like the, those two characters i think are hilarious and when they're butting heads it just like everything works like nothing feels dated there and that's i think the line is that i think he had easier times with certain characters than others i wonder if it's just he has an easier time writing male characters too well bill pullman i mean he's fine in the movie but his character is kind of flat like there's there's not a lot to i mean he's i like him his his character's fine but it's not it's not an exciting character well no and i but i don't think he's written as a peak character right that's oliver platt right that's he's well, he's sure. the crazy outsider we right, need a but grounded the- character right yeah, which he certainly is. In the context, though, of of like our leading man, I yeah, guess I'd say he's the leading man. man. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. Or vapid. maybe, actually, maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I would say that Brendan Gleeson, he's the one we start with, and I, mm-hmm. he's the one who shoots the last croc. I mean, maybe he's the leading man? I don't know. It's an interesting dilemma that they're running into here. Like, who's really the lead? Well, it, it's, I mean, so Brendan Gleeson takes the final shot, but Bill Pullman gets in the car with Bridget Fonda and they drive off into the dark. 
They do, it, which also just felt very cliche and to a oh, certain yeah. extent unearned, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah, wildly on all counts. But yeah. th- that's what makes, that's just what makes me come back to him as leading man. He might not have been leading man material in this movie, but only because he was just written poorly. Well, but um, but that's the struggle of the script. Yeah. And maybe that's the struggle with David yeah. E. Kelly is he, he, I mean, he's a TV writer. There's a lot of characters. And here it's like, I think there was some disconnect between who's the lead in the croc story and then who's the lead in the love story and it generally in most movies would be the same person but it doesn't have to be but it was like bill pullman just didn't feel like he had a lot other than trying to organize stuff at the end it really did feel like brendan gleason was kind of more the protagonist the more i think about it i'm I'm settled on that and then just (laughs) but but and that <laughs> that Bill Pullman just gets the girl. But I mean, what's he doing at the end? I mean, and what's he, kind he of, doing there? Yes. He he organizes, I guess, all the trucks and stuff to do the whole big trapping thing at the end. So I guess he kind of puts that into play and they do trap him. But then that largely accidentally falls to Oliver Platt. I guess the shot with the dart came from Bill Pullman. I don't know. It's it's a little bit of you're, a mess as far right as now, that. Yeah, you're trying to unpack an enormously uh, confusing and rather anemic climactic battle with the crocodile that I just, I was, I just was not, I was not engaged emotionally. I was not, there were so many other moments that, that elicited a more genuine fear and intensity. And this was not it. I don't know if it's because we actually revert back to a lot more CG and, uh, and it doesn't look great. It's the anaconda factor. By the time we get here, the crocodile ends up feeling slower. Like when yeah. she when she gets knocked into the water, um, this is uh, Kelly, Bridget Fonda's character, because it comes up onto land and it's like chasing people around and Bill Pullman distracts it and the croc turns, hits her with its tail and she goes flying into the water and then the croc chases after her and she swims to the, the crashed helicopter that where Oliver Platt is and she's swimming the croc, we know, they, they move pretty fast on land and even faster in the water. And for some reason, they've now established that crocodiles don't see very well underwater. And and it kind of like misses her because she hides behind a tree underwater. Even though it's night in a dark, murky lake, she manages to see and find a tree to hide behind. And the croc, it's like it's moving so slow, like she's manages to get all the way there with without getting caught. And I... I not, I don't quite click with that. I struggle with that a little bit. The fact that that's how that played out. They can swim at 15 to 18 miles per hour. And they can, I don't see where they run. But 15 to 18 miles per hour is pretty quick when you're swimming. How fast does a human it. swim? Like if you were dressed wearing your hiking boots, a short fin Mako shark, six miles per hour. That's Michael Phelps, Phelps topped out around that in 2010 at six miles per hour. And the croc no was Michael Phelps. the croc was more than fifteen to almost, eighteen. Yeah, you know, two and a half to three times. Yeah, that speed. Yeah. Now, I suppose you could argue the larger you are, the more cumbersome you are. You have it's harder for you to move, but once you're moving, it's then harder to slow down because of the mass. But I, I'm not sure that's <laughs> the reason I, that they yeah, they I had it. Feel like yeah, if, yeah. If you're going down that road, you've already lost. Right. <laughs> it's also <laughs> like a 2000 pound yeah log with teeth. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So I yeah, I don't that whole thing at the end where she is able to dodge it by when it turns sideways and opens its mouth and eats the it's like the 
Like you do that to puppies, that kind of trick. And well, and also, <laughs> like, I've always heard, and this is some more scientific stuff I'm sure we could find, but the strength of a crocodile is when it's closing its jaw. Like, when it closes yeah. that jaw, it's going to crush whatever is between its two sets of, of, of jaw bones. And it, the weakness is when it's trying to open, and that's why it's easier to tie their mouth shut, because it's really hard for them to open it. But closing, like I have a feeling with that tree branch underwater, it would snap that tree branch in a heartbeat and her. Yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, yeah. I'm just speculating. It would, bring, it, would, it, would, it would splinter it. I just have to imagine. I, uh, Yeah. So there are problems with the end, but this is nip. This is nitpicky stuff, but it's the nitpicky stuff that like it's like it kind of sucks the any emotional intensity out of the movie. I didn't get the jokes because they were we've established they were written too timely because David E. Kelly, uh, David E. Kelly, and and asterisk. The end, asterisk and the final sequence of the movie is not is not a compelling. It's an incredibly confusing trap that they sold that they they don't have a a, a good uh, consistent sense of visual narrative. I just don't. Like it's it's just a crocodile wandering in circles. Well, yeah, and I, I felt like there were probably better ways to do it. it it's it, it didn't like I wasn't supremely disappointed in it. Like you were, I, I felt like you know what? It's an entertaining end. There's a cow dangling in the water. Like there were things that made me laugh, and it, it still kind of holds and it plays pretty well. I actually have a good time with the end of the surprise of the second croc is fun. And we didn't even mention that. I was I was listening to our anaconda episode. I'm like, we never mentioned that there were two anacondas that they're dealing with because they kill one at the waterfall and then they have to deal with the other one. Anyway, yeah. that's another thing that is kind of this thing that we're seeing pop up in these movies is that, Doubles. oh, it's not just one. There yeah. were two. Um, yeah. But okay, but I, I did want to just come back. There were some jokes that work, and that's my asterisk, because I did like all of the sarcasm jokes that uh, the sheriff makes. Like, there were some things that I, I felt held up a lot better than stuff about uh, really particularly uh, Fonda's character. And and I would add Betty White is a national treasure. Don't she is the funniest part of this movie. She is 100%. the funniest part of this movie. And honestly, I don't like I I don't know. I mean, it's possible that whatever you give her, she could save it just because of her, because she is what she is. It's entirely possible. Um, but but her like her delivery of Kelly's words, I think, were were great. And whatever improv she did, I'm sure she did some. But my goodness, uh, it was uh, she's fantastic. And, you know, it's it's a rather predictable I think final sequence when we discover that she's sort of behind it because she's been feeding these things and we get the coda at the end with the little baby crocodiles. And and that's just I mean, <laughs> that it's all Betty White. Nibble those toes, nibble those toes, babies. It's just so great. Certainly an element that came up more in the sequels, because the second one, it was like her, I don't know, her sister or something like that, played by Cloris Leachman. It became a thing to have uh, the the Bickermans as a part of the story and like all of this stuff, which is interesting because I buy it when she says here. And I, I think that the screenwriters, like everybody involved, bought it that they just happened upon this crocodile and just took it under their wing and raised it from a baby in this lake or the crocodiles. And like I didn't I didn't I guess I didn't think that they actually put them here. But I guess now that I think about it, maybe they did. Um she was great. Uh can we talk about Gleason just a little bit? Did he uh does he feel just a touch overpowered for this movie? Um by star quality, you mean? Yeah, and just by like uh classic delivery. He felt I, I couldn't tell if this was one for the check 
uh, or if he was just like trying to build his career. Well, I mean, this was 99 Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Like I'd have, boy, I have to look back at his filmography to see what was he doing around this time. He had done the general right before, which was a big name, uh, a big film for him. Uh, right. This is my father, Sweetie Barrett, all like leading up to this. Um, then my life so far and Mission Impossible 2 right afterward. I feel like, you know, he was at a point where I think he was, you know, I mean, Braveheart was a few years before, but he was very much kind of a supporting character. Michael Collins, same thing. I don't really think that he kind of pushed onto the forefront until uh, much later. I feel like he was just a supporting actor. Uh, maybe that I'm, yeah, maybe. I'm not thinking of some more s- small independent projects he'd been on, but I found him to be more of a, a bit player. And it wasn't until, well, it was films like The General around this time that was like, yeah his film, but it was a, uh, a smaller property. Well, what, what it made me think of was that, uh, you know, is it possible that he, that this was made, you know, far enough before it was released that this was one of those cusp films for him that maybe he wouldn't have taken had it been offered it to him two years later? Um, because it just felt to me the very first Twinkie he ate was like, oh, God, <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> like, yeah. it, it just felt like he's he's just, um, this is not cal- uh, Calvary. No, 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 it's definitely not. But I, I don't know. I felt like everybody in it, regardless of their stature, like, I felt like they knew it was going to be just kind of a campy yeah. horror uh, comedy film. And I don't think they were pushing to get anything more out of it. And maybe that's too, too, um, it's fault, right? Uh, it could be just part of the problem is that people didn't, weren't pushing to do anything more with this. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I again, I find myself conflicted. Let's see. You want to talk about getting it made? There were a few things uh, in kind of the approach that Minor and Kelly, this was something I think David E. Kelly had been wanting to do something like this and ended up um, bumping into Steve Minor and they talked about it and thought it'd be a lot of fun. And so they they worked on it and and Minor really wanted to make sure that it looked good. So talked to Stan Winston, who was so excited about the proposition that he actually started working right away on spec. He ended up spending over a million dollars of his own money to develop this giant puppet. Um, and then they were able to use that to kind of pitch to investors so they could get get the funds. Um, so I, I thought that was uh, pretty great. Um, to film this, they they actually scouted some lakes and stuff, but found it too difficult to film in in real lakes with the puppet and everything that they wanted to do. So they actually built in their own tank. It was a one and a half million gallon tank. They built this basically whole set with the lake, lakeside, everything um, up in Canada. It was uh, they built the trees. They brought in these eighty to one hundred foot trees to place around it. Built all the beaches everything all around it so they could kind of manage the entire thing themselves, which was hard because with all the trees, the shrubs, everything that they added, I mean, they had to keep it all alive for like, I think it was like seven months or something from the time they started building it to the time they're tearing it down. It was a long period of time. And uh, plus they were filming in the cold. It was Vancouver in November. They ended up calling it the Godforsaken Tank of Doom, which I think is, is pretty funny. Fantastic. Yeah, but it made for working with a puppet in the water, a big hydraulic 
puppet a lot easier. All the underwater stuff they filmed in a tank in California, but everything on the surface they they filmed uh, at this thing, except for stuff like where you could see the actual lake, like Betty White's farm. That was at an, a real lake somewhere up in Canada. I can't remember where, but in that area. And so, um, yeah, so I, th- I think they fake it pretty well because um, honestly, I just assumed that it was all filmed at a lake. Like I never once bought that any of these shots along the shore were a set. Totally. And credit to, you know, Darren Okada and to editing team, Marshall Harvey and Paul Hirsch, because I that is the first thing I thought when I realized this was there was so much tank work apart from the well, and John Willett, production designer. Yeah, right. Uh, because apart from the the underwater stuff, which I just assumed was tank work, that there's nothing that that makes it seem like it's it's not one single lake yeah. the entire time. Right. It looks great. Right. It's a little uh, fantastical. They they say that, you know, they're in, I can't remember the name of the county, but it's it's the, I think it's the northernmost county in, in Maine, where it is supposed to take place, um, right. which you know, they say the the lake is supposed to be about a mile away from the ocean. According to the maps, the closest the corner of this county to the to the ocean is about an hour away. So it's a little farther away. I don't know if you're going to get a saltwater lake quite so far inland. I would buy it if it was only an hour from the ocean, but uh, but uh, you know, six or uh, I mean, a mile from the ocean, but sixty miles. I have a harder time buying that that's a saltwater lake that far inland. But wait, now wait a minute. That at some point in the script, he says that that's part of the mystery of this crocodile is that it's actually in a freshwater lake, but it's a saltwater crocodile. I, you know, I'm I, not finding any of that. I, that's I didn't a, find that's that. That's a Mandela thing for me. Because you had um, the sheriff talking about how they can't swim in saltwater. And Oliver Platt's character is just, you know, he says something like, oh, well, don't, sh- don't tell the crocodile or something, some cheeky yeah, line. Right, right. right. And so... I, I felt like that, yeah, it was an odd line to throw in there because it's like, well, most crocodiles are saltwater, but, you know, who knows? Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that was as soon as they said it was from from Asia and they swims across and then Oliver Platt, whose little sidelines like that were funny, but then at some certain points kind of frustrating, like they conceal that information in books. Eh, I'd kind of like to know how this thing got there. Like I find myself wanting to come back around to that multiple times. Like, that's a mystery that I think they could have actually given us more story there. Well, Pete, we could certainly continue and explore the Lake Placid series (laughs) (laughs) to find out more (laughs) about about these crocodiles. There are six of them, after all. Um, But, you know, the last thing I want to say about the effects work here, the Stan Winston's team, it's not just the crocodile that they made. That cow that's hanging from the helicopter, that was never a real cow. What? Like, I was fooled what? the whole time. I thought that they hung a cow from a helicopter. That cow the whole time was a puppet. They made a puppet cow. I have to tell you, I am so relieved at that because that was <laughs> genuinely distressing for me is when the cow was splashing at the end i was like i can't watch anymore that was the most horrific part of the movie is what they did to that cow i'm so relieved it was a puppet i, I yeah and it's it's like wow that was a really good puppet work they said they had all the controls for it in the copter and all the wires went down and then wow. they were just moving its head and legs around and making it do its thing so i was really impressed stan with that. winston national treasure 100 percent Ugh. 
Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. And what about the what about the the little baby uh, babies at the end? Is that in a tank? So the babies at the end were no. Well, they were in the actual lake where they filmed this up in Canada, and they had like um, because they were using the lake, they had to put like a net yeah. underwater. So no, what they did. Uh, this is what they did. They tied fishing line to each of their tails to try keeping them in line so that they could manage them effectively. Uh, they were they were actually baby caimans, which are really small. Uh, crocodilian species um and they uh they had i think five or six of them and two of them ended up getting away <laughs> they what? escaped into the lake and so i just think that's funny I, and i'm sure that they froze by the time actual winter rolled around there and they I'm, i doubt they could have survived yeah. but but the realities are how funny if <laughs> it had led <laughs> to exactly what this story portrays where you have these giant animals living in this lake now because they oh some God. idiot film crew filmed there and let them go. Oh, God. Hollywood is a snake eating its own tail. That's what it is. We, we mentioned we talked to old Steve Miner on the show, on the Speakeasy some time ago. We did, yeah. We had a chance to chat with him about uh, the Philadelphia story, one of his favorite films. He's an interesting guy. I mean, he's all over the place with his types of films. I mean, right. he was behind the Wonder Years. And then, uh, obviously, we get into the Friday 13th stuff and Halloween. Yep. Um, he's That's kind of his jam. And don't Been forget involved Warlock. involved in a lot. <laughs> and Warlock, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, he's such an interesting guy. Talk about a guy who contains multitudes. Um, I, I think generally, I, I, you know, this, for this movie, this is not one of his, his better films for me. It's fine. I enjoyed my time with it. And I think it's it's stuck at the at the uh, intersection of David E. Kelly and Bridget Fonda Boulevards. Well, it's interesting because I'm just kind of scrolling through his list here. I had forgotten that he did uh, Halloween H2O. Yeah. Uh, which I had fun with. He's done and, and he's done episodes of TV shows that I really like. His episode Insane in the Pea Brain for Eureka was fantastic. Like he's very, very and and Psych Talk Derby to me was another. I mean, that was just one of the great episodes of the show. Um, so, uh, you know, he's he can do so much. Yeah. I, I mean, he's he's been in he's done a, a variety of horror properties, but also like the horror comedy stuff and just, you know, dramas, comedies like his, his work is really across the board. And so it's interesting to kind of look at at what he, what he did. Um, and I haven't seen a lot of his films, but in general, I think I probably like them more than you do. <laughs> well, maybe. I you know, he did a lot of Dawson's Creek or some Dawson's Creek, a couple of practice episodes. At least we know where he kind of uh fell into um path with David E. Kelly. Anyway, uh Friday the 13th part 2, Friday the 13th part 3 and House, his first three um feature director directed yep. projects. Yep, yep. And um uh, great stuff. He's also in the airplane. He is. Movie. He's the pilot, right? Yeah. He he was not involved in any of the sequels. I, I I mentioned the sequels briefly, but you know, Lake Placid two, three, the fourth one was just called the final chapter, and then of course Lake Placid versus Anaconda, which we talked about last time, and then Lake Placid Legacy, which largely is considered kind of a new standalone film. It's not kind of in the line of the others, but generally they're all taking place here at the lake. Are they worth? Should I watch them? 
I've only watched the second one and it was terrible. It felt oh. very straight to video. And it was like, not even at the quality of Anaconda 2 or Anaconda's Hunt of the, for the Blood Orchid, which, I mean, that was a theatrical release. These have all been straight to video and it felt very straight to video. Okay. So I, I don't, I, after I watched the second of each of them, I was like, you know, I don't need to really watch the rest of them. But, but I'm sure it nailed those awards, right? <laughs> well, you'd think, but it I, I I think it was funny. It didn't even get nominated for like Razzies or anything. Like it it really just hit nothing. There was not a single award that I could find. So that's, that's my viewing of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, there there's one before we talk about the numbers, we we didn't I, I didn't mention one more name, which was John Ottman uh behind the music. Mm. Uh what'd yes. you think of the what'd you think of the score? Because Ottman has done some great, great work. He's done uh great work and he's also um, an interesting composer in that he also works as an editor. So, yeah. and I think that's an interesting thing about him. He's just been all over the place with the types of films he does. Um, he had been Brian Singer's guy since the beginning. They had been working together. And I I really, really think that he's a strong composer, does some beautiful stuff in the scores he does. And in this particular film, he didn't have anything to do with the editing here, but his music, I think, worked really well. And the, the crocodile, you know, we've been talking about their noises. We didn't bring that up at all, but the crocodile just makes crocodile noises in general. But the music yeah. has this really deep, like it takes the music really low on a real low register. And then sometimes it'll bring in like the plucked strings and everything for the crocodile. And I thought it worked really well to, to kind of play up kind of just a horror feel to it. I didn't like the um, music sting that we get when the beaver jumps out and freaks the guy out at the beginning. Other yeah, than that, though, I think it, it all works pretty well. Uh, in, in the spirit of ripoffs versus remakes versus, you know, homage, um, you know, I didn't I, I know that we can call the parallels to Jaws, you know, all day long if we wanted. But I think it, what I loved the most about the there, there's a haunting score uh, or a haunting sort of element at the end when we're waiting for the crocodile to do something after the helicopters crash. And it goes into like the the croc theme and it uses the same notes as the Jaws theme. Da 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 da. But it's um but it's just they're just used really, really slow. Yeah. Uh, and so you kind of have to pick it apart, but there's no way that's not Ottman intentional right there. I oh, thought it was just yeah. too great. It it really is clever. Very, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. All right. Let's talk about the box office. Well, Miner's film costs either $27 million or $35 million, <laughs> depending on <laughs> your sources. A little confusing. I'm going to just assume it's the latter and that the difference is the cost of prints and advertising because, you know, sometimes they just don't say that. That means that it costs $53.9 in today's dollars. The movie was released July 16th, 1999, opposite Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, The Wood, The Blair Witch Project, and Muppets from Space. Quite a variety that weekend. This opened in fourth place behind Eyes Wide Shut, American Pie in its second week, and Big Daddy in its fourth. It never did go higher than that, but uh, it did slow down over its run and ended up making $31.7 million domestically and $25.1 million internationally for a total in today's dollars of $87.6 million. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $411,000. Still profitable, but not as much as some of our others. Well, Andy, I... I don't know that you've helped all that much. I really enjoyed talking about it. I'm so glad to have watched it again. It totally fits in our Aquatic Killer series. 
I think I'm still as conflicted as I was when we started. <laughs> Glad I could help. Mat? Yeah, you've helped. <laughs> exactly zero. You want to take it to the mat? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie in the flickchart catalog where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Lake Placid or Il Postino the Postman. Yeah. It's Il Postino. I'm going to tell you, Pete, I still really enjoy Lake Placid. I think my after our conversation, my my rating of it and my feelings about it have dropped a little bit. Okay. And I probably would, on my own chart, put this over The Postman <laughs> because it's just something I'm going to return to more often. Guilty pleasure. I have a great time with it. Problems okay. and all. But That's for fair. our purposes here, I am going to put The Postman down because I do think it is actually the better film. <laughs> Okay, good. I mean, I'm really, I'm relieved. But I'm not always going to do that. So just be no, forewarned. No, no, you're a, you're a real mystery. <laughs> Lake Placid or Nikita? Um, Nikita. I'll say Nikita. Lake Placid or say anything. Oh, I'll say say anything. Okay, say anything. We had issues, Andy. But it's we Andy. do have issues. We do have issues. Lake Placid or the Little Drummer Girl. Lake <laughs> Placid. God, Lake God, if we could have Lake Placid versus the Little Drummer Girl, <laughs> Lake Placid or the best little whorehouse in Texas, Lake Placid, Lake Placid, indeed, Lake Placid or ye a one and a two, Lake Placid, ye ye. Oh, Andy, this is the one. Why this is ye ye so low on our chart? Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. One, one two, two, three, three. scissors. Rock. Well, Lake Placid mm-hmm. takes it. All right. Lake Placid or Amor? I'll take Lake Placid, I'll please. take Lake Placid. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. <laughs> Lake Placid or Near Dark? I'll take Lake oh. Placid. Really? Is this a, is it hard at all? Nope. Oh, all right. Well, Remember, like, I, yeah, I was like, like Placid, a little middling but... under. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's a really interesting film. Lake Placid or Giant? I'll take Lake Placid. Yeah, Giant. I mean, Lake Placid. You can watch Lake Placid easily twice in the time yeah. you get through Giant. Well, that puts Lake Placid in, on our chart at 416. 416 out of 474. Pretty low. That's about a 12%. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I uh, also ranked it. And 12%, man, i much higher than that. You'll be pleased to know how to do on your chart. I ended up at 989 out of 4497, which is about a 78%, Pete. 78%. That is actually higher than mine. Uh, I ended up at 735 out of 1472. That is a 50% straight down the middle for Lake Placid. Um, hmm. And if I go by the algorithm at letterbox.com slash the next reel, that should be a two and a half star right down the middle. And you know what? I'm going to give it that two and a half star. And I'm also going to give it a heart. Oh, yeah, I know. Two and a half stars with a heart. I was at a three. I was at, when I watched this in February, I give it four stars, four out of five. I really wow. enjoyed this movie on my recent watch. And this is, a, I suppose, a, a, a recency thing. I was like, yeah, you know, there were some more issues in here that I wasn't noticing so much the first time. I was really looking at it and it just struck me like, ah, there's a lot of problems I have. I, I don't drop it a whole lot. I'm dropping it just a little bit. Um, I'm going down to three and a half with a heart. 
um, because I definitely don't think it's a four-star film anymore. I was a little surprised that I was so uh, it praised it so effusively that first time. But um, but I still really enjoy it. So I'm okay at a three and a half with a heart because I think there's a lot of fun stuff in here. So that leaves it with an average of three in a heart. All right, there we go. Uh, that That's the end of Lake Placid. I'm, I, that is I, the end of Lake Placid. We now have crocodiles and uh, octopuses and piranhas Anaconda, anaconda, and now, saltwater crocodile, saltwater crocodile. What plus plus a great white shark? Plus plus a bonus great white shark from the past. What pray tell new entry will we have next week? We are now jumping into the ocean, and uh, we've been on dry land here um, since tentacles, really. And we're going to be looking at a whale. We're going to be jumping into the sperm whale territory. We're going to be looking at Ron Howard's uh, story that theoretically inspired Moby Dick in the heart of the sea from 2015. This one has a little bit of a different tone to it. Yes, supposedly. It's a biopic. (laughs) (laughs) Of of who? You, you were asking me about it's which the, one took it more seriously? Yeah. It's this one, Pete. It's this one. It's a biopic of a whale. Get ready, everybody. <laughs> when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Hmm. And Amazon, in fact, giveth this week. We did not stray from our uh, patronage of Amazon. I would just like to point out 76% of the people give it five stars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's notable. You should think about that when you like. I feel, I feel, ha- I feel like, okay, I'm not alone no, in my love alone. for this movie. All right. All right. All right. I think you should you should go ahead. You're you're starting high. All right. I am. I'm actually starting with a five star review by Timothy W, who says it's extremely underrated. Any reviews less than four stars and you can go and head and count that vote out. The only people who don't enjoy this movie probably work for Rotten Tomatoes, the worst movie critic company of all time. This is not art and there is no grand hidden meaning. It's a huge crock eating people with some pretty good humor sprinkled all over. This is entertainment. Love this movie. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you've you've got a real Rotten Tomatoes, uh, Pete. Don't yeah, trust them. I don't them. know what they were reviewing here. The worst movie critic movie, company of all time. It is a movie critic company. Um I think that I'm I'm really torn. Um, but I think I'm gonna go with this two star from Joe, who says Lake Placid, Lake Flaccid is more like it. <laughs> you see what happened there? He used a penis joke uh to start uh, his review. Of course. From all the hideous reviews this film has garnered, I wasn't expecting much when I rented it. I popped it in the DVD player and actually was enjoying it. I mean, come on. The opening sequence of the film is great. We see a foolish diver get bitten in two. The movie's only three minutes in, and we've already got one of the most gruesome-looking killings in a horror movie. I was even enjoying the obviously lame dialogue exchanges between the highly underwritten cardboard characters. But then I noticed something. No one's dying. One other guy gets his head bitten clean off. Hello, where's the gore? 
the scares, the attacks. Besides that, we don't even hate the crocodile like we hated Jaws the shark. We feel sympathy for the poor creature and don't give a flip about the goofball dorks hunting him down. The movie finally ends at a paltry 80 minutes. Not only does it have hardly any attacks, it's the shortest movie I think I've seen. Well, I think that honor might go to Halloween H2O, which coincidentally also directed by this film's guy, Steve Miner. Kudos to the special effects team, though. I've never been more convinced that a creature was alive. The croc really looked real. But the abrupt ending, poor writing, lack of attacks, and cheesy acting sink this croc to the bottom of the barrel. Crocs in a barrel, Andy. Mm. Good Lord, that would be horrible. We didn't mention that there were a lot of red red shirts in here. So many red shirts. They could have killed a few more red shirts off, yeah. I think. There had the opportunity yes. to end end shark hunger as we know it through all these red shirts. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 10 seasons of this. I should be a pro by now. First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, Certainly not Tentacles. (laughs) Oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John le Carre. Uh, uh, The Russia House. I love that score so much. Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We have covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Million Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the Fourth of July. American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 